Welcome to the Politics of Special Forces podcast. In this 10-part limited series, join me, Kevin D. Stringer, and me, Christian Breed, as we examine just what Special Operations Forces, or SOF, does, and how that might need to change as we move into this new era of great power competition. Well, this is it, our 10th and final episode. Some 24 months ago, Kevin and I promised that this would be a limited 10-part series, and this episode marks our delivery on that promise. Today, Kevin and I have a fascinating chat with two retired American Special Forces operators who now lead projects on technology, organizational culture, and decision-making in the private sector. Derek Jones currently is the Vice President of Valens Global and a retired U.S. Army Special Forces officer who served over 26 years in numerous special operations assignments, including with the 10th Special Forces Group Airborne, amongst others. He holds a master's degree from the U.S. Army War College, the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and the American Military University. Dan Leaf, our second guest, is a visiting fellow of Vision Foresight and served over 25 years as a U.S. Army Special Forces officer in command and staff positions in the 20th, 7th, and 3rd Special Forces Groups Airborne, as well as the Joint Special Operations Command. He is a graduate of Virginia Tech. They join us today to discuss the implications of a potential over-reliance upon technology within the Special Operations Forces community. They suggest that the idea of a hyper-connected operator will be challenged by the realities of peer and near-peer conflict, and that we all need to become far more comfortable with operating without the comforts of constant communication. Indeed, we will see ourselves returning to a reliance upon initiative and trust. Are we ready? Let's find out in our conversation with Dan Leaf and Derek Jones. Well, Dan, Derek, uh, welcome to uh, what is going to be our last episode for the Politics of Special Forces podcast. Uh, Kevin and I are thrilled to have you join us for, for this conversation. Um, before we really get into it, you want to just tell us a little bit about yourselves just real quick. You know, we have full bios and everything like that as part of the introduction, but just, uh, just to get us warmed up, uh, let us just tell us a bit about um, how you came to this topic. Sure. Uh, my name is Dan Leaf. Uh, retired last year as an Army Special Forces officer, spent about uh, 25 years in Special Forces. Um, one of my final assignments within Special Forces was to run uh, direct uh, something called the Combat uh, Development uh, Directorate, which is focuses on providing a soft end users uh, kit of all sorts from drones to boots. And so as part of that, I did a fair amount of outreach and work with Silicon Valley and, and the folks out there and really got a sense of the importance and the, of technology and the, the, the transitionary period we are in. And also came to see uh, there's a lot of talk about innovation and very little understanding or even and even less application of it. So uh, that, that's, that's me in a nutshell. Glad to be here. Thanks. Derek, how about yourself? How'd you come to this topic of soft and technology? Yeah, so I um Derek Jones. I retired in 2020 after about 26 years um in the army, with 21 of that being in uh, special operations. Um, uh, so I've done multiple different uh jobs in special operations. I've always been kind of interested in uh technology and how it plays into the various uh, aspects of, of our job. I think in the last few years, we've been looking more, one of my specialty areas is kind of resilience and resistance. 
you know, it kind of came to, you know, my attention that, hey, the signature is what's going to get us in the end, right? So, you know, you read through the historical examples of resistance. It's always about clandestine operations. And, you know, what does that really mean? You think back to the Special Operations Executive and the Office of Special Services, we see that, you know, they employed technology very early on. That was one of the reasons they were able to successfully organize resistance in the occupied areas was due to um, technology and, and, and radio um, communications, long-range radio communications. Uh, and so that's where I've kind of always kind of focused on. And then how does that apply today? So one of the big things is it changes, right? You know, your ability to, um, you know, push uh, some of this into the new technology space becomes problematic. So that's what's really driven probably the last 10 years of study to kind of figure out, okay, how does that apply? And then as big data has kind of emerged and uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, it just makes the problem much more difficult. So it's kind of caught my attention and, and that's why I've, I've kind of fo focused on that space. Right on. Yeah, thanks for that. That's that's fascinating. And I want to I want to sort of focus in on one concept that you you alluded to early on, this idea of signatures. Um, what does that mean to you when it, when it comes to the idea of operating on the modern battlefield? Well, Dan's got a great, you know, he, he always gives a good example. Hey, we've had signatures for all of military, you know, really all human existence. And the military has always um, had to adapt to its signatures, right? So, you know, whatever weapon system you're using, it gives out a signature. Your unit, when it moves, gives out a signature. You know, we've developed ways to camouflage ourselves, to hide communications as best we can. Um, and today's battlefield is, is no different. We're seeing this in Ukraine. Um, all those same old signals and, and different um, signatures we've always had are there. But now we have you know, the added one of digital signatures and what does that do, right? How does that play in the big data world where, you know, how do you hide when everything's giving off some kind of signature, um, especially when we've gone to, you know, electrons and we, we have these, these large, um, you know, data driven systems that produce, you know, information that our adversaries can actually use to their advantage, just like us. Yeah, and much like uh, Derek said about signatures, they are an inherent part of human activity, but certainly, of course, military activity. And you know, for the modern military, industrial era, and, and beyond uh, to our era, uh, you know, the signature is is profound. You know, hundreds of vehicles, tents, you know, tent cities, fobs, all that. So the signature is there, and. And now, as we are in you know, a more digitized age, then it just it, it, it expands to, to the to the digital world as well, and it's it's really inherent uh, with with whatever uh, a military unit of any stripe does now. And Derek, it's a it's a great topic you've selected both for this podcast and policy paper, and I, I think you've highlighted this proliferation of signatures. Dan, you mentioned early on technology developing constantly leads to greater signature detection. And I'd like to hear your both of your views on what are soft planners supposed to do and how are we addressing it? So we've got signatures, we've got even greater signature detection opportunities. What's a military planner supposed to do to, to start thinking through this? And I, I'd like to ask, is there a difference between what the conventional force has to face as opposed to soft? would be interested for both your perspectives. Yeah, so I would say, you know, as a longtime soft planner, uh, the last thing I ever thought about was signatures, right? So that just was never in my mindset. The whole, you know, last 22 decades of conflict, signature was never really our problem. I mean, we, we kind of own the battlefield. And so, 
you know, that really wasn't ever a concern. And I think now uh, for you know, our planners that are out there, they have to take that into consideration as one of the number one uh, issues as they do things, right? So that signature and that, you know, your ability to operate in this space becomes your ability to hide in that signature. And so not having those planners that can do that. And I think this is one of those spaces where, you know, we've had air planners and all this stuff. We have electronic warfare planners that are usually, you know, they don't sit at a front seat when you're doing planning, um, but now I think they have to. And I think they have to have the expertise to operate in these spaces and consider that as part of any uh, campaign or any operation. So it's, you know, there's an operational piece, but there's also a campaign and strategy piece because something you screw up today, um, signature-wise, uh, could actually have implications two or three years from now, and you don't even realize it because it's in the big data. So being able to think that far ahead is not very, you know, we, we don't think that way in the U.S. military, especially we think from tactical operation to tactical operation. So it, it's really going to take a fundamental cultural shift in how we think through uh, signature management, um, how do we analyze and understand our own signatures, and then how do we then use that uh, against our adversaries as well. No, I agree, Derek. It is something that will have to be is now inherently part of planning, like air planning or electronic warfare, and they have to have a, a real seat at the front table uh, because both operationally, uh, offensively, as well as defensively, you know, protecting the force as well as what you can do to improve operations with uh, regarding signature, and and how it's addressed as institutionally, it's. It, it could be a larger problem for SOF if given the the uh, clandestine nature of some of the missions that are uh, that are that are uh, within SOF's wheelhouse. And therefore, you're looking at now um, if some you are bringing soldiers into your formation that have their lives have been illuminated since they were in grade school digitally. Um, does that matter? Um, because. I mean, it's it's always been sort of a tension within soft that if we are the clandestine people, then why do we wear uh, lots of badges and, and and headgear that can give us out, you know, uh, single us out in a crowd? But given that as it is, as it is, you know, yes. So now you have institutionally, and when it comes to assessment selection, you know, you're bringing a you're bringing in a soldier that is his life is an open book, and now he comes into your allegedly clandestine organization. Sorry, gentlemen, I was uh, smiling at that comment you made about the badges and clandestine and the sort of that, that almost paradox. Uh, I remember some of my early uh, run-ins with some of our operators. Uh, you could, and I jokingly, and there's a little bit of sour grapes because I had never served in the community, but I've worked alongside them and seeing that there is a uniform, you know, it's uh, it's it's cargo pants, khaki shirt and a fishing vest, you know, and then that's, that's very simplistic. Um, but there was that that element to it, and that's sort of the stereotype that we see a lot. So I think that's really interesting. And the the idea of creating these, we almost have to create personas and characters right from the ground up now, given this big data implication, which I think is is incredibly complicated. And you start thinking it's you know, strategically, but in a whole different way. Um, yeah, and, and it, this can be a problem for soft more so than the conventional force. Yeah. It, if in state competition, soft is at the forefront in in, in activities to uh, to counter or to work against whatever uh, actors that that are your antagonists, then soft becomes the thing for the opponent to target. So therefore, you can 
we all know where all the special operations units are. We, we know where the Canadian one is, where it resides, where the British one resides, American ones are. So you could very quickly through, you know, very I mean, uh, simple methods now that are, uh, that are available that, that, that proliferated throughout the world to start picking apart, okay, who lives where, who's assigned where, where do their kids go to school, so on and so forth. And so if SOF is at the forefront of operations against other state actors or powerful non-state actors, then it yet becomes more of a concern potentially for a, for a soft in a different way than it would for a conventional formation. So Dan, I'd like to I'd like to pursue that thread. Uh, you, you said soft operators I mean, they're establishing a digital footprint in primary school essentially. You mentioned in your paper the organization Bellingcat. I just finished reading the book uh, talking about the founding of Bellingcat. And they've done excellent open source work on exposing adversary intelligence and special operations operatives. A recent case was a Brazilian student trying to get his internship at The Hague. Turns out he was a GRU agent, uh, very well documented, done all open source. So my question to both of you, if we believe that we do need certain selected soft operators to be clandestine, to do those special missions that no one else can do, how do we manage this and when do we start if in fact the digital signature already begins you know as a as a child now some hypothetical thoughts or or ways that we should start thinking about this knowing we can't mitigate away all detection but we can hide it more sufficiently to avoid the adversary belling cat from finding the people but what do you, what do you guys think yeah, I'll start on that one. So, I mean, this just goes back to understanding, you know, the, the digital space today and where we're trying to go in the future, right? So back to planning. So being able to understand and do the analysis of, okay, how does Bellingcat work? How do they be able, how are they able to find this data? And then begin to figure out how you mitigate that data as far down the stream as possible is really the key. You know, having folks that have been functionally literate in the digital world means that, you know, they can probably manage around this and live two lives, right? They can live, live a digital life that looks very clean. Um, that, you know, that that's just, hey, this is me. You've, you've watched me my whole life. It hasn't changed. Um, they, they begin to kind of, they, you know, they have a certain them that's that's digital. And then on the side, they also have their military life where they're, they're operating, but they're doing that very low, you know, zero to no digital uh, signature. That's going to take a lot, again, back to the cultural shifts. You got to have a huge cultural shift on how do you manage those individuals so you don't inadvertently expose them. You know, so you know, getting away from you know putting out you know public statements about hey these are individuals have been selected for these various schools. You know, every time we change jobs, like if I go in and out of units um, that are some of them clandestine, some of them aren't. Well, then I've got to be able to figure out how do I hide that that career path, which is very difficult. Um, but those are the things that you know we'd have to go back to the beginning of a career. Um, almost before recruitment and kind of begin to sensitize the, the population to, hey, if this is something you want to do in the future, these are the kind of things you need to think through on how you, you use uh, social media, your digital signatures and stuff like that. And very difficult to do. I mean, I've been on the recruiting side of soft, um, getting folks. I mean, we're, we're seeing right now where we can't even keep the population in shape to, to come into special operations. So then having them be digitally um, in shape is, is a whole nother problem. But these are all things you have to assume the risk in some places, but you can mitigate in others. And you just have to be able to understand how do I mitigate from the open source intelligence going on right now and our adversaries' intelligence capabilities in the future. And your thoughts? 
Yeah, no, much like Derek, it's it is it has to be a deliberate process and there needs to be uh, organizations and capabilities within the wider bureaucracy that is this is their mission and their focus. And much like I, I equated to, you know, when the when the air services started out in any of our military, it started out with a collection of pilots and mechanics and they been planes. That's all. That's what the air unit was. But over time, you you had to get air planners and you had to get a whole significant, that's why the Air Force doesn't have a lot of, has a small core of pilots and has all this support apparatus to enable that much. And and, and you have to look at it, you know, uh, it metaphorically like, or as an analogy like that, so that this is something that is not just the, the individual, you have to have a cultural change for what the individual does and doesn't do, but you need the bureaucracy around him of technicians and experts that can, uh, that that supports this. And so, um, and, and the more demanding or uh, expectations or uh, missions that are afforded to organizations or people, the, the greater support apparatus around them to, to enable that is needed. Yeah, this is uh this is almost a, a Gordian knot of sorts that you that you're all proposing here. This is fascinating, um, especially this idea of of you know like fitness, like it is almost like a digital fitness that you're looking for right out of the gate in the recruiting centers, which just yeah. adds another layer of complexity that's that's making it challenging to find talent. You know, and we're facing it in the Canadian Armed Forces. I'm sure it's all over the world. You know, people are very selective now and can be, be of where they want to employ, and for the military to become an employer of choice. Um, without reducing standards and without reducing what's re- what's required, uh, it's going to be a real hard uh, needle to thread, so to speak. It is, and much like uh, with the corporate world, uh, the sports world, you know, part of the recruitment and vetting process is, hey, what's this person doing on social media? You know, and and I, and I have, you know, I've had friends who are in, uh, involved in their colleagues who are involved in the NFL in National Football League scouting. And absolutely, with these top the top tier draft picks, they're pulling up their social media. What are these people doing online? What what kind of image do we want to bring this persona into our into our organization? And so, yeah, um, much like uh, in the past or presently, a candidate, hey, your your physical fitness score wasn't high enough. You can't carry a rucksack far enough in the time standard allotted. Also. Uh, you, what you've done on social media, you'd, you'd be you know, uh, toxic to what we're looking for. You know, yeah. it's just, it's just like uh, fitness is a good, good uh, metaphor. Yeah, no, it is for sure. And I just think of you know, I got, I got children that are now being starting to get exposed to digital media, and and you know, the the school system here does a really good job of digital digital literacy. But I think it's just scratching the surface, and this is where it starts. You know, it's not just for the military, but it's for anything. You know, public life, any kind of public facing. Uh, perception that, that that's going to be out there this, this is going to be a concern it start it has to start so soon and I wonder perhaps you know we're getting a little off topic but it's just it's fascinating in terms of if this is a generational adaptation that has to happen that the you know my children perhaps maybe come to this more naturally and are more generally cautious because they understand the implications who knows but uh this is this is a, a big challenge for sure on this idea of challenge, if you don't mind, I, I'd love to sort of circle back to what we were talking about um, earlier about this idea of you know what is soft to do in all of this. Like what is, what is the, what is what are the options that that planners have? What are the options that decision makers have? Really, you know, what does 
what are some of the implications for how we employ special operations forces in great power competition? Does it need to be rethought? How do we optimize the employment, uh, given that we're operating in, you know, for lack of a better term, a signature saturated environment? Can they truly yeah. operate a signature? No, it's it, it is definitely it, it will it requires a rethinking because they think of, I like to look at historical, you know, precedences to kind of guide my thinking. So like imagine like uh, the the early operation of the special forces in America was something called Operation White Star, the clandestine training of the Laotian military by the special forces. It was a very close hold operation. Well, imagine doing that now. It's completely illuminated. The, the travel information, the personas, the, the, the members of these special forces teams, it's all out in the open, easily gotten by uh, anyone from a, some, some teenager a, a hacker, not even a hacker, just some teenager to foreign, foreign adversaries, completely illuminated. If, and it doesn't take much scratching to find that, or like the radar in Tebi, you know, before the Israelis launched, it's all completely illuminated. From drones watching the airfield of Tel Nof to the, you know, watching the compound where they were training for that weekend before they launched. It's all illuminated. So how do you do that? Doesn't mean you can't do it, but it, you're going to have to do it differently. The old ways, as appropriate, will have to be, will have to evolve. But but what you're looking for, what you have to, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. You're like, what are you looking for? Um, you know, like like an Entebbe, you know, you, you had the Trojan horse. We're going to get a crappy old uh, uh, Mercedes that can barely run, but we're going to paint it black so it looks like Idi Amin's uh, car, just so we can make that 50 meters to from the plane to the to to the to the uh, to the uh, to the building where the hostages are. That's all we needed. All they needed to do that. They didn't need a large cover plan that would exist for years and would with, with needed a lot of scrutiny, withstand a lot of scrutiny. So there's different types and layers of what is required for would be required for soft. So, you know, you, you have you have to look deliberately look at that and pull that apart and understand that. Yeah, and I think the you know the key part is you know, exactly what Dan said. You have to really assess the risk uh, that you're trying to mitigate. Um, for every type of mission, every type of unit, right? So if we have different units that are set to different missions, then it kind of changes that dynamics, right? So we're, if we have units that are more hyper-conventional than they are, you know, low-tech clandestine, well, then, you know, we, we understand that they will probably not be the ones that will be able to get in uh, without being detected early on. On the other hand, I mean, we look at some of the stuff that, you know, the resistance stuff, unconventional warfare, you know, you could literally put an operator behind lines and be kind of like World War II where, you know, blind broadcasts become the, the means, right? So the units on the ground passively receiving information, they know that, hey, if I key a mic, I'm going to eat a precision missile most likely or um, inadvertently um, help the enemy discover that I'm there. And so it just changes the way we have to operate. And I think that's the, the critical side is, you know, we have to have, the, again, the culture shift away from I need information all the time. I mean, that's what we've grown, you know, two decades of leaders and special operations where they had instantaneous communications and really almost perfect situation awareness over every target um, with multiple stacks of drones and aircraft above. And that's just not the way we're going to be able to operate in the future. So now how do you train those leaders to be able to have the patience to wait for information to come back or actually you're going to get really zero information, right? So if I have operators on the ground doing a resistance, you know, operation on conventional warfare, am I going to expect them to be providing me with the intelligence, you know, like we did in the past? Like, you know, that's one of the things that really um, exposed 
you know, the, the resistance capacity in OSS or Office of Special Services and Special Operations Executive in World War II was their, the requirement to provide so much intelligence data back to the allies, right? So they were really the, the key piece of that. So today, understanding how much intelligence capacity we have, do we really need those operators on the ground providing that, that key intelligence, or are they just there as a mechanism to coordinate those operations? So they're the go-between between, you know, a, a, a allied or, or U.S. effort um, with that partner nation um, as they're conducting their resistance to some kind of occupation or, or other um, challenge. So I think that's the, the change we need to make and be able to build uh, leaders and operators that can actually um, be fine with not having communications. They, they, they're mature enough. I mean, if we look at Army Green Berets, we selected them for years based on maturity, their ability to operate by themselves. We got away from that because we, we kind of shifted into you know the last two decades of the fight where we had all that kind of activity, but can we shift back and get those operators back to you know, kind of that denied area, you're operating off of comms, um, but you understand the commander's intent and we're able to at least give you inputs on how we're changing the plan. So you can then uh, pass that to your, your counterparts. I think that's really the way you have to uh, adapt. Sounds like mission command is the solution here. Um, interesting, but it, on that, with this idea of mission command and the idea of, you know, sort of leading from intent and 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 not much else really, uh, we found that that simply reinforcing mission command concepts isn't enough. You know, we're struggling with that in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, I've seen similar literature in the U.S. Uh, with, along along the same lines. Um, it really is about, as you say in your paper, even about changing the culture. Um, so, what are some of the some of the cultural limitations that you see uh, within within your experience of fully embracing this idea of mission command as a philosophy within the Special Operations Forces community? Yeah, I'll start. Then Dan chime in. You know, Dan's got a great perspective on this. Um, yeah, I think the solution is mission command, um, but as Dan will kind of allude to, can we actually do that in the U.S. military, especially? Uh, this goes to all Western uh, nations. It's even worse for the Eastern nations. But you know, mission command is, has been in the doctrine. I think General Dempsey pushed it in the doctrine uh, almost a decade ago. Um, it's never been accepted uh, generally, and it goes back to that zero risk um, environment where we're we're kind of challenged by the fact that we have a risk adverse command structure. So those commanders will inadvertently pull everything centralized because they're the ones that have to pay the career price for, for mistakes. So, you know, until we get away from that, we're going to have a hard time uh, executing mission command in any form or fashion. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, it's, it is a cultural, I, I think culturally it's just uh um, mission command, as we all kind of define it, is culturally. I just it's sort of uh, an antibody to to our uh, certainly in America, where you know recently here at, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, there was some problems with mold in barracks, and it got national media attention. And the sergeant major, the top enlisted NCO of the Army, was down there checking it out. And I think that was completely appropriate. Soldiers should not be living in such conditions. But the point is. In that environment, in that institution, to then say, okay, operationally, we're gonna we're gonna decentralize and, and let I I just I, it just doesn't seem it doesn't seem like really something that that the leaders, civilian or otherwise, who like Derek said, they are holding that responsibility. They are the ones that whose heads on the chopping block if things don't go appropriately. Yeah, it's just it's just not realistic. Um, does it mean that in a tightly controlled tactical environment, you can you can make some uh, cultural adjustments to 
you know, uh, reporting expectations from subordinate to to a superior, but some kind of broader cultural change. I mean, I could go on and on, but I mean, mission command comes from the Germans, which comes to the Prussians, which the, the, the Prussians who were the, the officers who were the noblemen, they, the soldiers were they're like the peasants of their of their lands. And so they could have complete autonomy and control over those people because of the way their power alignment was with the Prussian king. That was not his his world, the what the what this nobleman did with their with their peasant soldiers. Then that got morphed into what the Imperial German Army, the later the Wehrmacht did under the Nazis. I it, to take some version of that and put it into a, a democratic nation, I it just I think it's unrealistic. Yeah, and I, I would kind of add to that, that, you know, special operations being smaller than the rest of the army, you could actually probably implement this um, and grow leaders that could do this better. And we've, I think Dan and I have all seen leaders that were actually practiced as close as you get to mission command. Um, in special operations, they're the ones that weren't careers. They knew that, hey, I'm, I'm taking risk and I'm okay with that. Um, so it may be something about the way we select individuals that some of those folks get there. They generally don't last long in a political environment, uh, so they don't make it to be general officers because they're they're risk takers. So I think that's the the, the issue. And I think at the end of the day, the uh, great balancer will be uh, mission failure. So you know, if we're in a near pair fight and all the communications get cut off, uh, we will have what we have, right? And we will be decentralized on on accident, right? And we will be you know, forced to to immediately adapt to that. And so for the, you know, for those, you know, you always heard the joke about, hey, I can't hear you. you're coming in broken to our commanders over the radio. Um, you know, this is like the whole new level, like, wow, I just got caught up from my higher headquarters. They're just not answering me. This is fantastic. You know, that's what most of, you know, most of us would be like, this is great. I can't talk to anybody. I guess I have to do what I need to do. So now back to good commander's intent. The danger though, is if you haven't trained those folks to operate that way and have that that kind of control, what do you get on the other side, right? So, you know, you look like even like a D-Day and I'm not the anywhere near the historian of, of Dan, but imagine on D-Day where you have all these various organizations dispersed all over the place. Um, they just had a common goal and, and intent and they just kept on going. You know, can we do that today in any Western uh, military? I would hope so. I mean, we're watching this in, in Ukraine where they're being very decentralized. They've got some, they're, they're doing stuff. But then how do you coordinate that action to achieve more than tactical success and get strategic operational strategic uh, success over time? That's the harder part without training folks to understand you know, how they fit into the bigger picture, um, making sure they are empowered and understand to take control when they don't have anybody, um, any con connections. That's a much harder uh, problem set to, to achieve if you haven't trained it. Absolutely. And you know, going to World War II, I can remember reading an account by a British Corps commander where he had a bunch of American units under his command. And he was like shocked that the British, the American commanders were always in their bunkers because they were constantly in there focused on reporting back to up their chain of command. They were so narrowly controlled and focused on that. They're like, you know, the, the, whereas this British Corps commander spent his time wandering around, you know, closer to the front. He's like, hey, my American counterparts just, just weren't able to do that because they were there were such expectations for them to continuously report to hire. And so it's definitely a cultural thing, which goes to, I think, a national thing. So I, I appreciate you both have highlighted really in a, in a frank manner the challenge, I think, of the signature environment the detection capabilities and the need for mission command, but also the controversy with mission command, really going back to culture. I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to take it up a level now to the institution, special operations command, which you both are familiar with. 
So I've just finished reading a piece before we did this podcast on the hyper-enabled operator. I won't mention author or publisher. However, it strikes me that at the institutional level, we're pushing technology as the panacea. And Derek, I come back to something you said that we need to build operators to manage and deal with this different environment, this digital environment, this high signature environment. And so I'm struck by there seems to be a dissonance between what SOCOM is pushing, that technology will do everything. However, you both are saying, you know, we, we need good operators who can operate independently, who understand the signature issues, who can apply technology or maybe use low tech means. Dan, you mentioned, you mentioned one um, earlier. So SOCOM is filled with people like you, senior people with this, this knowledge. Why are we why are we pushing the technology is everything solution? What's why I'm I'm perplexed by this. Yeah, I mean this is I mean it's really where Dan and I went in the paper of you know we've got this hyper connected um, hyper enabled operator is the future, and the the reality is that hey hyper connected hyper enabled means there's a lot of data that has to get to the operator and come away from the operator um, and the units and in doing so you've laid out this gargantuan signature that you really can't hide from and so you know in trying to be the you know super sneaky. Op- special operations of the future, how do you actually achieve that without, um, in this concept of this, this using technology, and you can't hide that. So, you know, it really becomes the Achilles heel, and that's what we were getting at in this kind of the study is, you know, that's that's the fundamental problem. And I think this just goes back to having decades of, uh, generations of uh, leaders that have watched technology, you know, play a significant role in the way special operations um, achieve success, right? So, you look at all throughout the the war on terror, you know, technology was really a game changer in what we did. Now, did it achieve any more than tactical success? Uh, I think we could argue that all day long. Um, I doubt it really had much more, you know, operational or strategic effect. But technology was there in everything we did, and technology bought down risk. Uh, technology allowed us to hunt our adversaries better. Um, but for some reason, we can't quite figure out how to translate that into, hey, you know what? That same technology that we use to hunt our adversaries becomes a technology. A weakness that our adversaries can use to hunt us. And so I just don't think it's been, um, you know, back to, we have to have some kind of catastrophic failure sometimes to really learn, especially in the U.S. military. And we haven't had a catastrophic failure due to technology. Uh, we've seen things, right? So we know we have uh, different special operations that have been spotted in um, open source uh, uh, open source intelligence, you know, just your average tail watcher being able to, to identify special operations starting you know, kind of to what Dan alluded to, um, and then kind of watch the entire operation unfold and be able to report on it. Um, you know, that's only get worse with a hyper-enabled operator and highly connected force. So I think that's the, you know, I, I, I think technology just becomes this, this you know, uh, you know, we, we just fall back on it in everything we do because it seems like it's the way to go, right? If you're going against a high-tech enemy, then you just got out, out high-tech enemy that we're against, right? So I think that thought process is really uh, impacted negatively. And I'm not sure how it's going to change. I think it's going to be some catastrophic failure where we're going to see um, how this played in. And I think the problem is like, you can't, Ukraine has, you know, the Russians have done so poorly in um, using data against um, the Ukrainians that I think our senior leaders like, hey, that's the, the future of the battlefield right there. Not realizing, like, hey, other adversaries, and even the Russians will learn. They probably won't come back. You know, ten years from now, there'll be a different Russian uh, military poten- potentially, but uh, China or other adversaries, 
they're watching this entire thing and they're not going to suffer the same fate. They will use technology to their maximum advantage. And I think that's where the, the you know, you take away lessons learned incorrectly from this, this event um, and not say, hey, we got lucky on this one. We will get lucky in the next one. Then we're going to continue down this high tech um, pursuit and hope that's going to be the uh, game changer. Yeah, I agree with Derek. You know, I think that vision is is somewhat of a legacy vision come, stemming from global war and terror, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan experience, where um, you know you're you're not really too worried about what the enemy can do against you beyond, of course, direct fire and, and IEDs and such. But like, you're not really what the enemy can do against you is pretty limited and, it's, and your main focus is what you can do against the enemy. So I think it's a legacy. Uh, it's kind of a legacy vision. And also, and, and you, I think you can see this, you know, historically, certainly in the modern United States military, that technology and a vision for technology, it's a good substitute and it's a simpler uh, way to do a vision as opposed to what am I I'm creating a force to do something and how do I employ it? it? It's, it is, it is an easier thing to focus on. We're going to have this super hyper connected operator, or we're going to have um, airline battle, or we're going to have, you know, whatever buzzword you can look at throughout, uh, you know, certainly United States military, modern history. Um, you see a lot of that uh, kind of um, simple Technology focused, um, technology focused vision, which is simpler to do than, than a, than strategy. But and one last point, I think the other issue is that you know budgets, you know technology drives big budgets. So if you're in the big fight in the uh, Department of Defense, you know, and you're fighting against big ships, you know, fifth generation aircraft, uh, if you don't come in with some kind of high technology capability, you know, you just kind of get left in the dust. So. I think that is another driver where we have built a system that that inadvertently um, drives the need for big uh, ticket items and technology is just in the sweet spot there, right? So that's that's how for special operations, you know, we, we spend most of our money on technology because it's it's the thing that gets us in the, you know, make sure that we have the, the budgets that we're gonna need. These are all valuable points. Th thanks for addressing that. Uh, concerning but valuable, it almost sounds like we have a, Watch too many movies at the senior levels, Terminator, Jason Bourne series, RoboCop, and maybe even Judge Dredd, uh, the 2012 version. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. make a big advocacy that I hope our listeners will read your policy paper. We really can't do it justice in a short podcast, but uh, just to highlight some things. I mean, you've talked about the need for what I call digital fitness. I think that's extremely important for soft to consider in the future. Uh, highlighting the deliberate planning Signature planning needs to actually be like air and cyber and everything else. It's got to be part of the plan. And I think most importantly, you've talked about the need for a culture change, going from this GWAT, very focused, rather high technology approach to the adversary, to having the field leveled and thinking back maybe to our history or, or potentially to something new. Um, all that came out really strongly in the policy paper, and I'm really happy that you addressed it today. So we're both grateful that you joined us. I think it's provocative, but the type of provocation we need in order to engender dialogue. And uh, Christian, I pass to you for the final words. Sure. Uh, yeah, Derek Jones, Dan Leaf, thank you so much for your time. You're very generous with it. 
Uh, we I found this really, really engaging and something that I think we all could talk a lot longer about. Um, but in the interest of uh, our promise to our listeners and to you as well and your schedules, we'll uh, we'll call it a uh, we'll call it full time here today. But gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.